Um, so just about a week and a half ago was St. Patrick's Day, which uh, at our house um, is kind of a tradition. Um, my wife's side has some Irish in them, so we love to celebrate with the Irish. Um, I'm not, I'm like German and French and, you know, all the boring um, stuff. So um, we get like boiled meats, you know, the Irish get St. Patty's Day with green beer, and we don't get that. But anyway, um, at our house we recite this old Irish um, kind of prayer that's always fun, and we have a good laugh about it. Lord, may those who love us, love us. Those who do not love us, may you turn their hearts. And if you cannot turn their hearts, may you turn their ankles so that we may know them by their living. Um, uh, and this year we were jokingly reciting the old prayer. And, um, in light of the conflict in, uh, in Ukraine and all the unrest that that stirred up, it brought up um, this uh, prayer, or really like a series of prayers, that my second son, Matthew, prayed um, years ago. That uh, he was, uh, we were watching a lot of John Wayne at the time. And uh, if you watch, if you're a John Wayne fan, you know that the beauty of the old westerns is that there was like clear-cut good guys and clear-cut bad guys. And you always knew who was who. Um, and my sons were kind of resonating with the good guys. And so one night, all on his own, Matthew was praying for our food at dinner, and he said, Lord, please bless all the good guys and kill all of the bad guys and bless our food. Amen. <laughs> and we, uh, we, of course, cracked up about it, but I was a little bit worried about the theology behind it, and even more the kind of inherent judgmentalism that was apparently growing in my son to assume that he was automatically one of the good guys and free from the wrath that he was calling down. And so we had a little talk at bedtime about the nature of human beings and how Jesus loves everyone, and, uh, and we were all bad guys when he died for us and loved us. And so we had this talk. And so the next night, Matthew asked if he could pray for dinner again. And, uh, and uh, he had paid attention the night before, and so he said, Lord, please bless all the good guys and protect us from all the bad guys, but don't kill them, just put them in jail or something, and bless our food, Amen. <laughs> And he peeks at me out of one eye, as just to say, is that better? And that night at bedtime, we talked about how Jesus didn't avoid or pray to stay away from or protected from bad guys. He actually spent time with them and loved them. And after being around Jesus, the bad guys kind of, weirdly enough, started turning into good guys and just from being around Jesus. And so Matthew informed me, he's pretty sure he got it now. And the next night, as before, he asked me to pray for the meal. And I gave him permission, and he immediately dove into this prayer that I think he'd been rehearsing all day. And it kind of bored here, he said most of the old Irish prayer. He said, Father, bless all the good guys, and find all the bad guys, and turn them into good guys, and once you turn them into good guys, bless them too. And he looked at me and goes, good enough. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I finally conceded to Matthew, I thought that was a pretty good prayer. And I think Paul would approve based on this morning's passage. We're tracking through the lectionary readings from Paul's letter this Lent season, uh, and we're focusing on some of the ways that Jesus collides with our lives, oftentimes in unexpected ways as we uh, seek to surrender our lives to him. And we talked about how he collides with our sin by asking us to believe that he's actually good enough to forgive them and actually trust that his sacrificial death on our behalf paid for our sins, even though we are completely unworthy of that love. Um, and then we followed Paul's invitation to join us in following Jesus as Jesus kind of collides with our influences. Um, and he drew our attention to the voices that we allow to speak into our lives and shape us. 
And uh, because we are creatures of imitation. We were created to bear the image of God, which is where the word imitate comes from. We're creatures of imitation, and we will actually act like whoever we follow. And so Paul warns us to follow the right people. And then last week we talked about the way that Jesus collides with our past uh, to the point that he invites us back there to think about our own story. And, and honestly, to look at the way that we've changed uh, because honestly, that's the only way to ever really assess change. Uh, it's the way that, uh, it, it's an interesting phenomenon about trying to predict your own future at all. You can predict with relative accuracy that tomorrow's going to be very, very similar to today. Tomorrow's going to go pretty much the way every Monday goes. But, so you can almost predict exactly what tomorrow's going to be like. And yet, you can almost not predict at all what it's going to be like 10 years from now. Your life can change so much. In, in, in 10 years, that, and, and it's weird that even though every day is basically the same, the future always changes, and things, major things always change. It's kind of like working out. Um, you can go spend two hours or three hours or four hours in the gym, big, grueling workout, come on and stand in front of the mirror, and you're going to look pretty much exactly like you did when you went. Like, no matter how hard you work out in one workout, you come home looking the same. But if you work out every day, 20 to 30 minutes, and you stand in front of the mirror one year later, you, you might look completely different. Change can only be assessed over time. Rarely do we see a dramatic change immediately. And so the past is this beautiful opportunity to look back and go, God, look at what you've done in my life. Every single day felt the same, and yet I'm so different than I was you know, five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago. <clears throat> Um, and only by revisiting the path can we see that kind of growth and change. Uh, the spiritual life is no different. At any given moment, if we compare ourselves to who we should be or who we could be or who we wish we were, we can quickly, quickly, quickly get discouraged. But when we look back at the person we used to be, oftentimes we see just how much God has been working in us and, uh, and acting on our behalf without us even knowing it. Uh, and we have to be honest with our past and allow Jesus to um, take us there uh, we can see uh, this kind of, and be grateful for his presence with us all the time, just how much the Holy Spirit's been doing in this. Well, this morning we're going to be catching a passage that is in one of my, like one of the most entertaining books in, in Paul's canon for me. Um, we'll be in 2 Corinthians, and I'm going to give a little explanation why this text is so much fun after we read it. We'll be in 2 Corinthians verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 16, if you want to follow along in the Bible or app. And if you're online, if you want to click that link in the bulletin, it should take you um, to the slide. So, uh, Paul says, We have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ and God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be an offering for our sins, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Now, before we dive into this passage, um, I'd like to give a little background um, of this book because the relationship between 
First Corinthians one, and, or First Corinthians and Second Corinthians is really fun for me, um, probably because I'm a preacher. But um, if you aren't familiar with the book of First Corinthians, it's a really harsh book. Uh, Paul is uh, clearly dealing with some very specific issues that the Corinthians church um, had that had been communicated to him, probably either through one of his uh, co-workers uh, traveling to Corinth, or maybe it came by letter. Uh, but there were some major problems in the church that Paul is addressing rather forcefully, honestly. He calls them out of several, several really uh, major problems in the church, and he does it really bluntly. Um, he even comments on his bluntness. Uh, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 4, starting verse 18. He says, Some of you have become ignorant, thinking I will not visit you again, but I will come, and soon, if the Lord lets me. And then, then, you'll, then I'll find out whether these arrogant people uh, just give pretentious speeches or whether they really have God's power. For the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It's living by God's power. Which one will you choose? Will I come with a rod to punish you? Or should I come with love and a gentle spirit? I mean, I'm pretty sure I use almost exact, those exact same words at like bedtime. When you come into the kid's bedroom, you're like, I'm coming back in 15 minutes. You get to decide how that conversation goes. Yeah. If everybody is in bed, we're going to do just fine. If not like, I think I've used Paul's almost exact word. Do I want to come with a rod of punishment? Uh, anyway, pretty spooky, really. Paul is like flat out threatening him. Uh, and you might even get the impression that Paul doesn't like him because, I mean, he's pretty harsh through the whole book. He calls them babies. You know, you're not, you're not even mature enough for me to talk to you about real things. You're still babies. Like, he, he gets pretty brutal. Um, and so you would think maybe he doesn't like this church, at least not as much as some of the other churches where he speaks considerably differently. But then in the second book, there comes a, a different tone. Second Corinthians 2, um, I'm going to start verse 3, verse 3 and 4, says... That is why I wrote you as I did, so that when I do come, I won't be grieved by the very ones that ought to give me the greatest joy. Surely you all know my joy comes from you, being joyful. I wrote that letter in great anguish, with a troubled heart and many tears. I didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much I or how much love I have. Considerably more gentle, pretty dramatic change in tone. And trust me, the letter continues this way. Paul praises them for actually taking the things in his first letter to heart, acting on them, and he's uh, really just considerably more gentle through the whole book. Everything he says in the second letter um, and, and is, is more gentle. And, you, and one might wonder why the dramatic tone change between the two letters. And I personally think it shows up in chapter 9. This is why I have so much fun. He says, uh, I really don't need to write you about the ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem. For I know how eager you are to help, and I've been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that you in Greece were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of the Macedonian believers to begin giving. But I'm sending these brothers to be sure you really are ready, and I've been telling them that your money is all collected. I don't want to be wrong in my boasting about you. Uh, we would be embarrassed, not to mention your own embarrassment, if some Macedonian believers came with me and found that you weren't ready after all, as I had told them. So I thought I should send these brothers ahead to make sure the gift you promised is ready. But I want to be, if I want to be a willing gift, not given grudgingly. <laughs> I know this sounds cynical, uh, but I really think the reason Paul is being so sweet in this letter is because it's an offering letter. He's asking for money. Um, and, uh, and the guys who were delivering this letter were sent to kind of count it and make sure it was all ready and organize it, prepare it for travel. 
you know, because they didn't have, like, checks, you know, so when they carried money, they had to, like, carry it, and it's very dangerous to travel. So they were sending basically a bodyguard to get the, the money ready. Um, and so before it sounds too creepy that Paul was writing and being sweet to ask for money, I do actually explain why he was asking for money. A famine had hit Judea, where Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church was, and they, had, they were in a very different climate, so they're having a famine while the European churches are all blessed, and so the European churches are taking up an offering to send to uh, the widows, as we talked before, um, the Jerusalem church had a lot of orphans and widows. So that's why the very first staff members in the church were were hired to to feed um, tables in Jerusalem. And so Paul's not raising money for himself. He's not leveraging his sweet tone to raise money, you know, for the Paul goes to Tahiti fund. He's doing it um, for the for the widows and orphans in Jerusalem. Um, but it seems very clear, at least to me, that this letter is primarily about raising money. Um, uh, and and, uh, and all the way down to the people who delivered it were there for a specific person. So if you've ever wondered why Paul sounds so different in 1 Corinthians than he does second, that's my hypothesis. And if it ever bugs you the way preachers have a tendency to sound different or even creepy when they're asking for money, it's biblical. It goes all the way back to Paul. So what we're going to do now is we can get out your checkbooks. We're going to go. Um, now, this morning's passage, um, Paul has just finished this kind of long diatribe on uh, the amazing hope that lies in the gospel. It's actually one of his most beautiful passages, um, and, he, and he's talking about even in hard times how amazing the gospel is. Um, all the amazing riches that are ours in Jesus kind of laid out in this beautiful kind of poetic language that Paul uses. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says this, um, we now have this light shining in our hearts, uh, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. This such glorious um, image of the Christian life, the most precious commodity in the universe contained in you and me. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy to think about. And, and the answer to all the world's problems is in this room, in you in me. That literally the answer to injustice and poverty and hate and bigotry and abuse and loneliness and depression lives in us, which is amazing. It's crazy to even attempt to comprehend and, but that's the claim that Paul is making, the very light of Christ in these clay, clay jars. And Paul goes on to relate it to how we endure hardship. He says that you know, we can be pressed from every side, confused, trying to knock down. But even when, even then, uh, we're never abandoned by God, and the power of God still shines through us. There's some of the most kind of inspirational words in the scripture when you're going through hard times, and Paul pours them on heavy in this passage. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul puts kind of the cherry on the cake. He says, for we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave our earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body, made for us by God himself and not by human hands. So we have, kind of the, not only do we have the very presence of the Holy Spirit within us when we go through hard times um, and we're coming to, and we also have this heavenly dwelling place waiting for us, you know, when life gets literally too hard to carry. And uh, so, man, what do we have to worry about? So he's like, not only can we endure hard times when we have the very light of Christ living in us, but we also have this heavenly dwelling waiting for us. It's, it's absolutely a fantastic picture, and it's meant to be hopeful. 
every bit as hopeful as it sounds. No matter how bad things get, we win. We win. No matter, no matter what happens. Like, even when the world is at its darkest and we lose people we truly love and we don't feel like we can live without, there comes a day when it feels like they were only gone a few seconds. This is the hope. Um, and, it, and, it's, and, it, and it is hope that it's most distilled and beautiful. Especially in dark and uncertain times. But Paul does not leave it there. That's kind of the setup for what he says next. He takes all of that hope and all of that light and all of that beauty and he asks the question. It's a totally natural question, but it's one I don't think we ask enough in America, I'm afraid. Let's look at this morning's passage. Once again, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21. He says, So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently do we know him now? This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all this is a gift from God who brought you back to himself through Christ. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us who speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who knew, who never sinned, to be an offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with, with God through Christ. The question that Paul is asking is, now what? Now what? He says, you have this amazing light of Christ in you. You have this amazing future ahead of you. But now what? What do you do with it? What now? Now what do you do? Having been saved and having the very light of Christ in these jars of clay, now what do we do? Do we just hold on tight and try really hard not to screw up? Is that like all the Christian life is about? Is just holding on and trying not to sin? Paul does not seem okay with that answer. In fact, Paul seems to feel that this relationship with Jesus changes everything. Everything. He starts out by saying it changes the very way we see people. At one time, he said, we, we stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. If you've experienced the grace of God, the very light of God in your clay jar, and, and you truly understand you sin and, and your unworthiness and true rest, that you are inseparable from Christ because of his love for you, like dramatically changed in Christ, and that doesn't change the way you see people, then you have to wonder if you've really spent time wondering at how much Christ loves you, how much he's done for you. Jesus told it this way. There was a servant who, who uh, owed his master more money than he could ever pay back. And the master called him in to settle the debt one way or another, and the, the servant falls on his knees and begs for mercy and makes some promises that they both knew he couldn't keep. But somehow the spectacle moved the master's heart and he, and he forgave the entire debt. He erased it completely. Unbelievable, incomparable grace. And the servant, free from kind of the oppressive debt that he's lived under, is now able to build something of his own and, uh, because his debt is gone and he starts collecting a few debts of his own. And a fellow servant, he owes him a couple bucks, he finds the guy and he smacks him around and demands his money because it's his money. He can do that. And the guy borrowed it. He owes it back. And he demands this guy be arrested or thrown into debtor's prison. And he never realizes until he's back in front of his master. And his master's explaining to him what just happened. That he had completely missed the mark. The master actually has to spell out to him how much he was just forgiven. And that the right thing to do was to forgive other people. 
The servant hadn't even made those connections. And we can be guilty of the exact same thing, the things that we have a tendency to hold against others when literally our slate has been wiped clean. But that doesn't mean it's not understandable. We all do it, and it's and it's tough. Which is why I think Paul's words are so important. Because if we focus on the debts, on the wrongs that people have made, it is hard, maybe impossible, to wipe someone else's slate clean. What we actually need to do is look at the whole situation differently, which is exactly what Paul suggests. He says we have to stop evaluating others from a human point of view. From a human point of view, people hurt us. They do. They do terrible things to us. They don't give us what they should. They take advantage of it. They leverage power and abuse. And the idea of forgiving that kind of stuff is daunting. But when we see them not from a human light, but from the perspective of a God who loves them, even in their sin, to the point that he would send his own son to die for them, just as he did for us, if we begin to realize how pitifully our offenses really are, it's hard to justify and hold on to them. So again, if accepting the love and grace of Jesus doesn't change the way you see people, then you need to spend more time opening yourself up to the love and grace of Jesus. But that's not nearly all that changes in the light of Jesus' presence in our life. Because Paul, after telling why we can look at, at others and not judge them and look at them from a different perspective than mere human eyes, he says this, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And those are really powerful words when you consider just how much we count people's sins against them. But the real kicker comes from what Paul says right after that. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. And this is where everything changes. See, the gospel isn't really about you just getting into heaven. Now, I need to be careful that we nuance this just right because we mess it up all the time. But we really have to, uh, can get a skewed view of how this works, especially, I think, in the West. How many of you ever heard the phrase kicked around? If you were the only person on earth, Jesus still would have come and died just for you. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah, we, we hear it all the time. He loves you that much. He would have done this just for you alone. And that's probably true. May or may not be true. I don't know. I'm assuming it's true. But it's really a self-centered way of looking at the gospel. And I think it, it goes against the very nature of the gospel. See, Paul lays out this almost incomprehensible miracle of salvation. The very light of God in earthen vessels. Hard to even grasp that. And then he immediately says, and, 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 he's called you to share that miracle. It doesn't stop with just you getting saved. He's also called you to share that we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Getting saved is only half the gospel. The second part is joining the missio dei, what they used to call it, the mission of God. Paul says the exact same thing in, in, in Ephesians. This is from Ephesians 2, starting in verse 8. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. That is the gospel. It's a beautiful gift. As much as you want to try to earn it, it does not work that way. It's a gift given freely. And step one is to get that. And it's just a gift. Really get it. Because the second part, 
uh, comes next. And if you don't get the first part right, you can totally screw up the second part. Here's how Paul follows up this complete declaration of how grace works. You cannot take credit for it. It's not you. It's a total gift. Here's how he follows that up. For you are God's masterpiece. He created you anew in Christ Jesus so we can do good things planned a long time ago. It's almost the exact same language as 2 Corinthians 2. Paul says, anyone who belongs in Christ, in 2 Corinthians 2, says, anyone who belongs in Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And then he says that God has given you this message to pass on. Here in Ephesians, he says, God created us anew. There's that new creation again. So that. There's a big so that in it. There's a reason that God saved you, and it wasn't just so you could get to heaven. He has a work for you, a reconciliation work for you. This is why I say we have to be careful how we nuance this, because it's super easy to get the order wrong. On those. We do it all the time. So let me tell you what Paul says, and I'm going to tell you the way we tend to hear it. What Paul says in both 2 Corinthians and Ephesians is God saves us. God does it. By a sheer act of grace because of our faith in Jesus. God does it, it's done, period. And out of that acceptance and abundance of that amazing gift, we join in the reconciliation work of Christ as his ambassador. That's what Paul says, but here's what we have a tendency to hear. If you want to be a Christian, you have to do good works. If you want to get to heaven, you need to live a godly life and obey scripture. If you want to be saved, you need to change the way that you're living and voting and serving and do it just right. But that's flipping the text. Paul doesn't say that. Never does he say that. That you do good things so that you can receive the grace of God. Never does he say that. Not at all. He says, once you have freely received from God his freely given grace that requires nothing in return. You have been reconciled, and you join in the ministry of reconciliation. And it sounds like a minor difference, because at the end of the day, isn't it just people who love Jesus doing good? Does it really matter if you get it backwards? Like, at the end of the day, don't those two lives look about the same? Two people doing good and declaring the name of Jesus? Absolutely it matters. As similar as those two scenarios sound, they are night and day difference. And it's the difference between the gospel and just another version of the Old Testament law. And if you get them backwards, you've missed the gospel. And that's the reason I tend to gravitate to the, to the Corinthians passage. I think we trip up on this idea of good works or good deeds or the good things that God has planned for us. We tend to hear in that the list that we've been given. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss, you know. Help the poor, whatever other good deeds, you know, you've been handed that are ingrained in you. And that can make the newness and freshness of the gospel a little sideways. So I prefer Paul's phrase from Corinthians when he says, We have this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. And I don't know why I resonate resonate more with the idea of being an agent of reconciliation, but I don't do well with good deeds. Like those evade me sometimes. But being an agent of reconciliation wherever we go, I like that. First, I think is because reconciliation can't be narrowed down to a list. You can't make a checklist and am I doing reconciliation today? Like you can't narrow it down to a list you can check off, you know. You can, we can check our good deeds off. I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this. We just check them off when we do them. 
You can't do that with reconciliation. It's hard to even judge if you're accomplishing it. And I think it's because it's deeper than just what you do. It gets to the level of why you do what you do. Not so much are you doing this or doing that or doing this, but more are you living a lifestyle that shouts and spreads reconciliation and redemption? Are you joyful? Are you an agent of healing spiritually, emotionally, physically, financially, relationally, and however else? Are you an agent of healing wherever you go? Are you promoting personal and soul growth and depth in the people you're with? And of course, are you making Jesus big in your life? Is he the sinner that people recognize in you and wonder what's different about you? The first thing I love about this concept is it goes much deeper than just a list of good deeds. It's about living a life that promotes reconciliation. The second thing I love is the way Paul ties us to Christ. He has given us this wonderful message of reconciliation where Christ is better. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ. This is something we call incarnational evangelism, which is basically a fancy theological term, meaning that when you have the Spirit of God in you and you go into a place, you, you represent Jesus to people to the point that you're actually speaking and acting for God in that. It's incarnational. It's like Christ in us, God with us. Which means the way you live and love is every bit as important as whether or not you can articulate the doctrines of the the church and the Christian worldview accurately. When you represent Christ to your co-workers, it's far more important that you represent Christ well and, and that you live lovingly well and you invite people to come home to God than it is that you can answer all their apologetic questions properly and argue theology accurately. Bearing the ministry of reconciliation goes so much deeper than just a list of do's and don'ts or a handful of good deeds that we want to accomplish. The message of reconciliation means everything changes. It's about shaping your life differently because your life has a new purpose. And that is what I think Jesus wants to collide with this week, our purpose. We were created for purpose right off the bat. At the very beginning, God gave the first humans purpose. We talk about this all the time. Theologians call it the cultural mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, steward the earth, govern it well, advance this little kingdom I've given you. And when sin entered the story, our purpose felt like it was lost. They still moved on with the cultural mandate. They still they were fruitful, they multiplied, and they, they advanced. But it seemed to shift from real purpose and depth to just survival. It's like our mission in life is just to survive long enough to die. Accumulate some stuff, get ahead at work, get smarter, make some babies, and then die. And for the most part, it's purposeless. We distract ourselves with short-term goals like, you know, we get a dog or do some work around the house or, or, you know, hang out with friends on the weekend. But really, if you want to use the words for Ecclesiastes, it's meaningless and chasing after the wind. And into that void, Paul, with literally a mission that means everything, steps in. What could be more important than welcoming, inviting, pointing people back to God? Because accumulating some stuff, getting ahead at work, those things mean nothing. 
What Paul hits on is this deeply rooted need in every human soul for purpose. It's like you are now agents of reconciliation. You have a reason to live. You have a reason to do what you do. He says, so we are Christ's ambassadors. We get to share the message. Come back to God. Come back to God. That sounds like a geographical statement. Come back to God. Like, like how could you ever be far from an omnipresent God? He's everywhere. But the invitation echoes back to the oldest question in human history. Aeka. That's how you say it in Hebrew. I think. I had to look it up. Aeka. The single compound word is a full question in Hebrew. And it's the very first question recorded in human history. Adam and Eve sin. And we know the story well. God shows up in the garden and he asks this probing question that I don't think he's ever stopped asking. In fact, I think he's asking it this morning. The Lord called to the man, I ain't. Where are you? God knows where Adam is physically, of course. This question is so much more than geographical. Where are you? Where is your soul right now? What is going on with you? Where are you right now, Adam? Literally the oldest question in human history, and I believe it's at the root of what it means to live with reconciliation purpose. Because if Paul is right and God is making his appeal through us and speaking on, we're speaking on God's behalf, the driving question is still, where are you? See, being a follower of Jesus is living a life of reconciliation, not just by rejoicing in the grace of God that was freely given to us, but also in recognizing that we've been handed a ministry of reconciliation. Living this Christian life is not about getting people to manage their sin or live with a Christian worldview or calling out the ways that they're falling short. Living a life of reconciliation is about doing what God did 6,000 years ago, asking the question, where are you? What is going on with you? Tell me your story. And then engaging in the story that comes from the answer. And that means taking time to listen. Taking time to get to know people. It means entering their mess. I mean, think about what it sounded like to God when Adam and Eve answered this question. Adam, I'm a hot mess. I don't even really like myself. I'm in full hiding mode. It's not really even my fault. I was dealt a bad hand, and the person who was supposed to help me turned on me. The relationship turned out to be a disaster, and I'm still reeling from it. Eve jumps in. You don't understand how much pressure I'm under. All the voices are always pushing me, and someone's asking me questions I don't want to answer, and I'm afraid. I'm pressured to know more and, and, and control more and be more, and it's crushing I couldn't live under that constant pressure. And that's their, that's their answer to the question, where are you? And I promise you, if you take reconciliation seriously and you recognize yourself as the spokesperson of God and you start telling people what, if you stop telling people what to do and instead ask them where they are, you'll hear this exact same stuff. We're still answering the question the same way. And God does tell Adam and Eve about the path that they've chosen. 
He tells them where it leads, and it's not a pretty story. But God doesn't just scream consequences from heaven with a big shame on you tacked on to the end. God takes time to enter their world, literally shows up in the garden, steps into their world, takes the time to hear their story, all the blame, even the blame that's pointed at him, and all the bad assumptions and misinterpretations, and God doesn't feel the need to correct them and tell them how much of their own story they're getting wrong. He just lets them tell their story. And in so doing, he meets them there in the story. And the whole process is about that question. Hey, God, where are you? And if we take this purpose of reconciliation seriously, then that's our question. Hey, God. It's a question that drives our mission in life. And like God did with Adam and Eve, we show up. We ask the question and we enter people's Stories to help them answer for themselves that 6,000-year-old question, where are you? Only when we get to live on the other end of, of Eden. Because no matter where someone is, no matter what the road they're on looks like, we get to say with Paul, come back to God. Wherever you are, come back. Jesus made the way. We just need to turn Come back to God. So how do we respond to this? Years ago, Esther and I had some friends um, who made us sick, honestly. Like literally made us sick. Esther was physically nauseous. I committed to love this couple no matter what they threw at us. And I mean to tell you, it was not easy at first. Their marriage was a wreck. They were blunt and mean, and on top of being a hot mess themselves, they were crazy judgmental of other people. And one night, they kind of shared their mess with us, and Esther came home. Um, and up to that point, I had never seen her that angry. Turns out I was able to make her even angrier. But <laughs> at that point, I would never seen her that angry. She was furious about the way one of them had ripped into the other one. It was totally dehumanizing. She was physically nauseous after sitting and listening to them talk to each other, about each other. But something changed as we sat and listened to their story and shared in their story. And even though uh, we only stayed because I had kind of made this like commitment that I was going to, to love this couple through thick and thin, Something about hearing their story changed things. And we stuck with them. And we had the privilege of not only uh, helping this couple avoid separation and divorce, but we actually got to watch them fall back in love with each other. And honestly, they, the way they grew and changed and became better humans was completely and utterly inspired, inspiring to us because we did almost nothing. They'd been very longer than us. They like we didn't have any real advice for them. We had no fix it. All we did was share their story. There's something in that to, to do it in a non-judgmental way changed, and we got to watch a miracle happen. We got to watch this couple that we had never heard <coughs> hatred like that, and we got to watch them fall madly in love with each other. Got to watch their whole life change. We, we got to do the work of reconciliation, and it was literally one of the greatest privileges of our lives. And all we did was ask that question Where are you? 
What's going on in your world? I hate God. So the way I'd love to respond to this message is to spend a little time this morning as we sing one last song and gather around the table together asking yourself that question first. Where am I? I hate God. What's going on in my world? What's going on in my heart? And then ask, am I living a life of reconciliation? Do I have purpose? Do I wake up in the morning knowing I have purpose? Worst thing we could ever do is live and die and never know why. Do I have a real gospel reason to get up this morning and do whatever it is I do? Have I appropriated the love and grace of Jesus into my life and have I accepted the call to be an agent of that reconciliation to others? And wherever you fall in that, commit this week. Try one week. This is Lent. We're supposed to work our butts off in Lent. Try one week of being an agent of reconciliation, to bring life and reconciliation to others. Sit down with people and hear their story. Ask the question. Let that question just burn in your soul. Where are you? Where are you? God's been asking you for 6,000 years, the very first question ever. Where are you? In your marriage, in your work, in your kids, in your everyday life, what does it mean to ask and answer that age-old question? Where are you? Spend some time with that question. Ask it of others. And take the time to hear their story. There's no better season than when, as we await the resurrection, to start living our lives with real purpose, as if we actually believe Paul when he says that we've been given this ministry.